All right. So you should be finding Matthew chapter 1. When you're there, I'm going to read to you, not from Matthew 1. So listen as I read from Isaiah 53. Stay in Matthew 1, but just listen to what, I, listen to what Isaiah says. Who has believed what he has heard from us? To whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant, like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him, and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised, and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth like a lamb that's led to the slaughter, like a sheep that before its shearers is silent. So he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people? And they made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in death. Although he had done no violence, and there was no deceit in his mouth, yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. We'll stop there. This is from Isaiah. Hundreds and hundreds of years before the birth of Jesus. And in it, we read a story, we hear a prophecy about one who will come. It doesn't have any kind of status or attractiveness in and of himself. It actually was a man of sorrows, one who was acquainted with grief, someone who would be despised, hated, who would bear our own griefs, griefs and carry our own sorrows, that he would be smitten by God, be pierced for transgressions, crushed for sin that He would bring us peace, that through His wounds we would be healed because we, like sheep, have gone our own way, away from the Lord. And through His sacrifice, like a lamb led to the slaughter, we have life. Now Isaiah is prophesying. He's making a proclamation from the Lord about something that's going to happen. And don't let the past tense of Isaiah 53 mess you up. Prophecy oftentimes in the Old Testament is written in the past tense because it signifies to you and to me and to the original listener, this is as good as done. I am so confident that this is going to happen, I can speak about it as if it already has happened. So today we continue our journey through the season of Advent by thinking about the idea of fulfillment. Fulfillment. Advent reminds us 
that all of the promises that we find in Scripture, all of the promises that we find from God will come to pass. But they will come to pass in ways that we may not expect. The first advent of Jesus coming into the world as a baby boy was a shock and a surprise to many who were looking for a certain kind of Messiah. They were looking for a royal warrior, and instead they found a humble carpenter's son. They were looking for a man of great status and great influence among those who were influential, and instead they found a suffering servant. Today, I just want to look at a few of the promises that Christ fulfills in himself. And we could go all over Scripture, but we'll just look at a few. And then we'll look at how these prophecies about what he will do in the future should be understood. Now, one of the big takeaways for this morning for you and for me, underneath my sermon proper, is this. We need to know our Bibles. We need to know our Bibles because God has given us this miraculous treasure in his very word. And if we would take the time and the effort to understand it, to read it, to study it, empowered by the grace of the Spirit, we will discover remarkable things. And one of the things we'll see this morning is that you and I really can trust the promises of God, but I cannot cling to promises that I don't know. Because if I don't know God's word, I don't know his promises, then I don't have the kind of assurance that I and being offered by the Lord. We will be filled with delight at the genius of Scripture and the blessings it has for us if we will dive in headlong and devote our lives to knowing God's Word. So let's read together. We're actually going to be now in Matthew chapter 1. You should already be there. And we have three things to talk about this morning, all in, in dealing with the idea of fulfillment. So if you're taking notes this morning, before we read Matthew 1 or selections from it, You can write this down. Jesus is the promised one of the Old Testament. Jesus is the promised one of the Old Testament. That's not a shocker to to most of us. Um, We know that that to be true, that Jesus is the one that the Old Testament looks forward to. But in his day, Jews, the, the people of God, Israel, they were looking for a certain kind of person or actually a certain kind of people. See, there were all kinds of prophecies and promises made in the Old Testament about a man of God or a son of a, of a certain person, and they were thinking that these might be separate people. For example, in Isaiah 53, what we just read this morning, it's the idea of the suffering servant. And up until the person and work of Jesus, no one, no one would have thought that the suffering servant of Isaiah 53 is the same as the son of David who will reign as a king forever. Nobody would have guessed that that's the same person. But in Christ Jesus, we find all of the fulfillment of all of the promises of the Old Testament. So look at just Matthew, chapter 1, verse 1. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. All right, just stop there. We're not going to read the whole genealogy, although it's important for us to understand with confidence that Jesus really is the son of David. He really is the son of Abraham. Why are those two things important? Well, in 2 Samuel 7, you'll have to turn there, God makes a promise to David. and He says, David, your son, an offspring from you, one of your heirs, will be king forever. He will set up and establish his throne, and his kingdom will have no end, and it will reign forever and ever. The throne will not depart the house of David. 
So now we see in Matthew chapter 1, Jesus is the son of David. Look down at verse 20. Thinking about Joseph, Matthew writes, but as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Jesus is the son of David. He's also the son of Abraham. Why is that important? Well, if you were with us this summer when we went through the book of Galatians, you know that the son of Abraham is the one through whom all the world will be blessed. That from this offspring, all the world will find blessing from God. We see here in Matthew 1, verse 1, and again in verse verse 1, that he is known as the son of Abraham. Well, what else do we see in Matthew 1? He's the son of the woman. Remember back in Genesis 3, 15, the the fall, the the, the fact that Adam and Eve sinned against God. They ate of the fruit of the tree of knowledge of good and evil. In Genesis 3, 15, God tells Adam and Eve and the serpent that he will put strife, he'll put rivalry, he'll put enmity between the woman and the offspring, between her offspring and his offspring. So someone will come from a woman who will crush the head of the serpent, although the serpent will bruise his heel. So it's interesting that over and over and over and over, you see in this genealogy from verses 2 through 16, we have a man who was the father of so-and-so, who was the father of so-and-so, who was the father of so-and-so, who was the father of so-and-so. And then look at verse 16. And Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born who is called Christ. Hopefully you're picking up what Matthew is trying to do. Even in this first chapter, Matthew in his gospel is trying to communicate to you and me that all of these promises, all of these prophecies, all of these hopes that the people of God in Israel have had for someone to come to make things right, they're being fulfilled in Jesus. Look at Matthew chapter 2. Who else is Jesus? He's the son of man. In Daniel chapter 7, we see Daniel get a a prophecy, a a premonition of this, this vision in heaven of the ancient of days, God alone with all authority and all power, and then someone like a son of man, a a human being, coming up from the clouds in heaven, and the ancient of days gives all authority to this son of man who will rule and reign over all things. And, and all the nations, Daniel says, will serve him. We'll look at Matthew chapter 2. Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. There it is again. Here in Matthew chapter 2 we see Men from the nations are coming to Jesus, a baby, to worship him. He is the Son of Man. Just go on down a couple more verses to verse 6. And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. In Genesis chapter 49, 
Jacob is giving blessings to his children, and he tells Judah that the scepter, the the tool for ruling and reigning, will not depart from Judah. And we see in Matthew 2.6 that Jesus is from the land of Judah. All right, one more. One more. In Deuteronomy 18, Moses, the prophet of Israel, the, the leader who brought Israel out of Egypt through the Exodus story, as they're about to go into the promised land, in Deuteronomy 18, tells Israel, a prophet like me will come, and you will listen to him. Well, in those days, there was no one comparable to Moses. He was the greatest prophet, the greatest leader, the one through whom the law came. And here Moses is saying, after me, another prophet will come, and you will listen to him. Now listen to this insight from Whitney Woolard. I, as soon as I saw this, thought, this is amazing. So I'm just quoting her here. She says, consider the similarities presented between Moses and Jesus here in the Gospel of Matthew. Jesus is sent by God to deliver his people. He's pursued as an infant by a murderous serpent-like king. He's spared in Egypt through providential means. Next, Jesus comes out of Egypt, enters the wilderness for 40 days of testing, and then goes up on a mountain to deliver a new law. The Sermon on the Mount. Matthew also tells us that Jesus is known to miraculously feed large crowds of people in desolate wilderness-like places and is spotted by his disciples on a mountain with his face shining like the sun. Does that sound familiar? If you've read the Torah, the first five books of the Bible, you know that this echoes Moses' story almost exactly. So Matthew, in the way he structures his narrative, is going to great lengths to show you and me that Jesus has come as the new Moses. Like Moses, Jesus came up out of Egypt, passed through the waters of baptism, entered the wilderness, and went up onto a mountain to give a new authoritative teaching. We realize that Jesus could be none other than a long-anticipated prophet. So just that is an example I hope you see. If we know our Bibles, if we know the Scriptures, when we read the Scriptures, we will start to notice things that we've not noticed before. I've never put that together until I read that studying this week and thought, that's not a coincidence. Matthew is trying to show us something, that Jesus really is the fulfillment of all of the promises that God makes. He's the one who will crush the head of the serpent. He's the one who will receive from the Ancient of Days all authority. He's the one who will bless the nations. He's the one who will reveal the Word of God with power. Jesus is the promised one. But some of these promises are not complete. Sometimes we read prophecies of Jesus in the Old Testament, and they seem only partially fulfilled. Does this mean that the prophets of God were an error? Well, no. It means that we're seeing up close what the prophets saw far off. So as we think about Jesus being the promised one, second point is this. Jesus fulfills prophecy over two advents. Jesus fulfills prophecy over two advents. Jesus has come and he's coming again. So in Acts 1, chapter 6, you don't have to turn there. It's a, it's a story we all know. After Jesus' resurrection, he's taught about the kingdom of God for 40 days. And he's with his disciples and he's about to head back into heaven. He's about to ascend. And the disciples are ready to witness the fulfillment of all the prophecies of their scripture. Remember, these are Jews. They, they, they knew the Old Testament scriptures. Those were, that was their Bible. 
They were convinced through his life, his death, his burial, his resurrection, that Jesus really was the Christ. He really was the Son of God. He really was the Son of David. So they expected those promises to come to fulfillment now. So they asked Jesus in Acts 1.6, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? That's not a dumb question. If Jesus is the son of David, through whom a throne will be established who will reign forever and ever, then it makes sense that you would ask Jesus, so you defeated death and Satan in the grave, and you died for sin, you rose from the grave, you, you now have a glorified, resurrected body, you're the son of God, are you going to be the king now? Are you going to restore the kingdom to Israel now? Are you going to fulfill the promises that we've held on to for generation after generation after generation? They weren't just looking for some kind of reward. It wasn't like the disciples were saying, hey, so we're going to be like the officials in the kingdom, right? Like we're going to be the, like the royal cabinet. No, they, they wanted to witness the prophecies be fulfilled. So find with me Isaiah chapter 9. Isaiah chapter 9. Isaiah chapter 9. If you just open your Bible up halfway, you'll probably be in Isaiah. You may be in the Psalms. If you're in the Psalms, just flip over to the right a couple pages. <coughs> Isaiah chapter 9. The disciples are asking Jesus if he's going to fulfill the promises of the Old Testament. Look at verse 1. There'll be no gloom for her who was in anguish. In the former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the latter time, he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwell in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. You have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with the harvest. They are glad when they divide the spoil. Flip down to verse 6. For to us, a child is born. To us, a son is given. And the government shall be upon his shoulder. And his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government of peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. So a child is born, Galilee of the nations, and the government will be upon his shoulders. He will be the Prince of Peace, Everlasting Father, Mighty God. And the disciples are looking at Jesus in Acts chapter 1 going, this is you. Well, we know this is you. We're, we're convinced that this is you. So, so are you going to establish your kingdom now? That rule of David that will never ever end, is that, is that now? You and I probably would have the same question. But that's not what happens. Jesus doesn't respond and say, well, yeah, of course. No, what does he do? You will receive power when you are my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. See you later. <laughs> he ascends into heaven. He doesn't establish his kingdom on earth. He ascends into heaven and sits down at the right hand of the Father and is now awaiting his return. So much so that Again, I think I've mentioned this to you before, but what I think one of the funniest scenes in all of Scripture is Acts chapter 1, because the disciples asked them this question, and he goes, uh, yeah, you're going to receive power, be my witnesses in the place that they tried to kill you, see you later, and he just floats up into the sky, and they're like, literally it says, as they were gazing, 
angels came down and said, why are you still looking up into the sky? He will return to you the same way that he left. So Jesus is coming again. He's awaiting his return. So was Isaiah wrong? Did he mess up the prophecy of smushing all of these things together? Well, not quite. When Isaiah or other prophets of the Old Testament proclaim God's word in a predictive way, like they're looking into the future and they're telling you what they see, they often compress time. They often compress time. It's as if we're looking off in a far distance and we see a mountain. We can tell it's a mountain. We can see the the, the rough shape of it. We know it's huge, but we know it's so far off. We can't really make out any detail, but we know this is a mountain. But as we get closer to the mountain, we realize that that one mountain is actually mountains. That this one giant shape is actually many shapes. One mountain in front of another, in front of another. From, the, from a distance, they had melted into one image. But upon closer inspection, we see the distance that exists between them. In the same way, we can think about Old Testament prophecies as compressed into one proclamation. But as they are fulfilled, they're fulfilled in three different contexts or horizons, if you want to be technical, for their fulfillment. So one of three locations, or more than one, but in these three locations. So when a prophet prophesies something in the Old Testament, the first way it could be fulfilled is within that context, within the Old Testament itself. Many prophecies come to pass relatively quickly after their announcement. So there's a prophecy about being in captivity for 70 years, and that gets fulfilled within the time of the Old Testament. The second and third horizons are where we're focused at this point. The second horizon is the New Testament, or the time of Christ's first advent. So Isaiah 9 is taking place, what we just read, within this horizon in part. A son is born, a child is given. That happens when Jesus is born. Jesus ascends to heaven to reign as king. He is a mighty God. He is the wonderful counselor. He is the prince of peace. But there's a third horizon. It's not the New Testament, it's the new creation, or the time of Jesus' second coming, his second advent. That's when other parts of these prophecies come into focus. It's where he will reign as king of kings, and that reign will be recognized by the whole world. It's when the kingdom of God, full of righteousness and justice, will flourish throughout creation. Jesus even does this. You don't have to turn there, but just listen to me read. In Luke chapter 4, he reads from Isaiah 60. So you should be in Isaiah chapter 9. Just flip over a couple pages to Isaiah 60. Isaiah 61, sorry. 61. So Jesus is in the synagogue, as you're finding Isaiah 61. Jesus is in the synagogue. Rabbi, teaching with this kind of authority. He grabs the scroll of Isaiah, opens it up to what we would say is Isaiah 61, and he begins to read. This is what he reads. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me, because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and the opening of the prison to those who are bound, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he rolls up the scroll, hands it back, walks away and says, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. And they marvel. They marvel. Who is this man? 
But you're reading Isaiah 61, and you realize that Jesus has cut off not even a section. He's cut off in the middle of a phrase to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God. He doesn't read that part. He closes it up after year of the Lord's favor, hands it back and says, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. What's going on? Jesus understands that within these prophecies, there is distance. In the first advent, Jesus' first coming, he comes to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. He comes as a redeemer. He comes as our savior. He comes as the one who made way for us by dying on the cross for our sins. He's the one who offers us eternal life in the first coming. But in his second coming, he will proclaim the day of vengeance. When he comes again, he will not be primarily in our vision, the Redeemer and the Savior. He will be the judge. He will be the one who will judge the living and the dead. That leads us to our final point this morning. Jesus has come and is coming again. Jesus has come and is coming again. Let's pick up where we left off in Isaiah 61. to comfort all who mourn, to grant to those who mourn in Zion, to give them a beautiful headdress instead of ashes, the oil of gladness instead of mourning, the garment of praise instead of a faint spirit, that they may be called oaks of righteousness, the planting of the Lord, that he may be glorified. They shall build up the ancient ruins. They shall raise up the former devastations. They shall repair the ruined cities, the devastations of many generations. Strangers shall stand and tend your flocks. Foreigners shall be your plowmen and vine dressers, but you shall be called the priests of the Lord. They shall speak of you as the ministers of our God. You shall eat the wealth of the nations, and in their glory you shall boast. Instead of your shame, there shall be a double portion. Instead of dishonor, they shall rejoice in their lot. Therefore, in their land, they shall possess a double portion. They shall have everlasting joy. Students, because Jesus has come to accomplish salvation for you and for me and for the whole world, we can have assurance that the promises of God that have yet to be fulfilled will come to pass. Because Jesus has come once and says he is coming again, we can have complete confidence that he will do what he says he will do. As the church of Jesus Christ, you and I are now caught between two ages. We see this in the Great Commission, right? I'm with you even to the end of the age. One age is of promises made. The other is of promises fulfilled. One is an age of sin and brokenness. One is an age of righteousness. One is, a, is a, an age where things are not right, where things are broken apart. One is an age where things are made whole. They're made new again. It's easy for us to be led by the flesh, the world, the devil himself, to be led away from the promises that are coming. It's easy for us to miss the tastes that we receive of the Lord's goodness here and now as we're caught in this present evil age looking ahead to the age to come. But the year of the Lord's favor will give way to comfort for those who mourn, Isaiah says, for garments of praise instead of a faint spirit. One day there will be no in-between. 
one day, all the promises of God will come to pass in Christ. And His return, His second coming, His second advent, will usher in the end of the present evil age and the consummation of the age to come. That which has been destroyed, Isaiah says, will be repaired. God will make all things right. And we know that because the little baby in the manger is a guarantee that the King of Kings is coming again. Christ's first advent is the guarantee that His second will come to pass. Now what does this do for us? As we're thinking about fulfillment this morning, that God in Christ fulfills all of His promises, well, it should gird us up. It should steal us. It should make us strong in the face of sin and temptation. Because instead of sorrow, we can put our hope in the one who is coming again. Instead of lamenting, leading to more lamenting, leading to more lamenting, it can instead lead to the joy of the Lord that marks all those who are His. Because we know that this present evil age is coming to an end. It reminds us that the promises that God has made about us will come to pass. So when you and I read Romans 8.1 that says, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, that's really true. You can believe that. You can hold on to that. You can cling to that in the midst of your sorrow or your struggle or your temptation or your frustration or your loneliness or whatever it is that you're wrestling with. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. How do I know that? Because Jesus is the promised one and all things are going to come to pass just as God said. And if I believe him there, I can believe him right here. That I really am a new creation in Christ. That the old really has passed away. The new really has come. I can say no to sin now because Jesus fulfills the promises of God and I am in Jesus. I can believe that I really have been sealed by the promised Holy Spirit, that He really does dwell within me, that nothing can ever separate me from the love of God, that I really can have rest in Him right now. Over the next two weeks, we're going to spend some time on Sunday mornings thinking about the joy and the hope that we have in light of Advent. But the fact that we can have joy, the fact that we can have hope, is founded on the fulfillment of the promises of God in Christ. Without this fulfillment, without Jesus being who God has promised Him to be, we would have no hope, we would have no joy. Paul says we would be most of all the people to be pitied. But He is who He says He is. He has done what he said he will do. He is coming again to fulfill all the promises that God has made. So let's pray together. And then we'll spend some time thinking about the idea of fulfillment, promises of God that we can trust and cling to. Let's pray. Father in heaven, you are so kind and so gracious and so merciful Not only that you would accomplish salvation for your people. Not only that you would send your son, born of a virgin, 
to live a sinless life, to assume all of the brokenness that we have as sinful humanity, to redeem all of it. But you wrote it down. You recorded it in your book so that we might read and wonder at your power, your goodness, your glory. God, you have made us many, many encouraging, powerful promises. And Lord, I pray that in the next few minutes we might encourage one another as we think about promises that you have made, things that you have said to us that will come to pass, commands that you have empowered us by your Spirit to fulfill and complete. Lord, we can rest as Christians because we trust that Jesus really is who Scripture says he is. That he really is the fulfillment of all of these prophecies and promises of the Old Testament. That he really is the the son of the woman, the son of Abraham, son of David, the greater prophet than Moses, the son of man who receives all authority. On and on we could go. God, thank you. Thank you for doing what you promised. Help us to cling to your promises as we await their fulfillment when Jesus comes again to make all things new. Until that day comes, Lord, we pray you would keep us faithful. Fill us with your spirit. In Jesus' name, amen.